I'm going to do this South Beach session a little differently off the top because I'm very biased on this one. I've known Rachel Nichols for nearly 30 years, and I've truly been amazed by her climb because I don't think people have any earthly idea the degree of difficulty involved in getting her to where she was and where she is in a field dominated not only by cavemen, but also by perhaps the worst possible poison in the entire content industry the soulless and entitled male media executive who thinks he knows everything when he doesn't know shit. Rachel Nichols was railroaded out of the mainstream media in a way that truly scared and horrified me, but we'll get to that in a second. First, I'd like you to know some things about the woman I know. She began in her early 20s as a writer at the Fort Lauderdale Sun Sentinel. That's when I met her. Her ambition was easy to see then. But let me tell you something that scares the soulless and entitled male media executive who thinks he knows everything when he doesn't know shit. That kind of ambition from a woman. Her ambition, which is expected and needed from a man who is a boss in any competitive field, is not quite viewed the same when it comes in a different package. It's easier to be a dick when you have one. So there were some people who didn't like her because, well, there are some people who don't like me either, and you don't want to imagine how I'd be received or looked at if all the stuff I am were in a 250-pound, 55-year-old woman instead of a 250-pound, 55-year-old man. I told you not to imagine that. I'm sorry I made you imagine that. I told you you didn't want to imagine that. I warned you. Anyway, I'm sorry. But climbing is hard. Climbing hurts. And Rachel climbed to the very top of our industry, building unbelievably strong relationships with the unbelievably strong men in basketball who aren't quite as afraid or threatened by a woman with ambition. NBA players trust Rachel, at least in part, because they see a mirror on their competitive ambition when they look at her and they admire and respect it. But you know what happened as soon as she climbed to the top with her reporting and relationships and professionalism and journalism, right? People accused her of sleeping with the players. You know, the same way they accuse people like Woj and Shams of doing the same. Oh, wait, they don't actually do that, do they? Rachel has had to live with and overcome that shit for 30 years, and she's had to hide it behind a smile made for television. But in terms of sports media, there are not a whole lot of humans in sports, men or women, as qualified as her. This woman, I'm here to vouch, is a gangster and a boss. And soon, hopefully... A partner. I'm so excited to work with her and all the smoke. I'm so excited to be a part of her Watch Me Now Vengeance Tour now that she's working for herself and with her friends instead of for fools. And I'm so very grateful to have her in my corner as we build this network for DraftKings. But I remain flabbergasted and ashamed at the way my industry handled her exit from ESPN. I'm going to need you to trust me on this part. Her and I, at some point, will talk more directly and openly with you about what happened to her at the end of her ESPN run. But we will not be doing that here and now in this conversation. It's one of the first times I've ever agreed to that kind of stipulation in a journalistic setting, but I did it in the hopes of one day being able to give you the more complete story. She didn't want to discuss that here right now, and I'm going to respect that. But you should stick around for what we do get into. I don't think you'll be disappointed. Here's Rachel Nichols. Welcome 
to South Beach Sessions. I'm very happy. I've known this woman for a long time. 25 years she's been covering, that's crazy to say, a quarter of a century she's been yep. covering the biggest stories in sports. And I've met my match here because I assure you that she will interview as much as I interview here. So hopefully it won't just be me asking the questions. Rachel Nichols, thank you for being on here with us. It's very nice to see you. I feel like your audience is here for you. So I'm going to have them get to know you better. That's fine. I want these to be, uh, yeah, intimate and a little bit uncomfortable for me as well. The goal is to make it feel like you're not making television, but you're just sort of overhearing a dinner conversation um, that you and I would have. Mm -hmm. And uh, I guess now I've known you for close to 30 years, right? Because yeah. your first job was in Fort Lauderdale, right? Your yep. first professional job? So I graduated from Northwestern and I had done an internship in Fort Lauderdale a year earlier. So I think that's actually when I first met you before I was even out of college. And then, yes, I was 21 years old. I moved down to the Fort Lauderdale, Miami area. And I was sort of the backup on the reporter on the Dolphins and the backup reporter on the uh, UM team and the football team, which was at that point, it was Ray Lewis's senior year. And I don't have to tell you, but the audience knows how bananas that was. Um, and there just weren't people like me there. And you were, frankly, the closest thing. And we are not super, we don't look alike, but <laughs> the fact that, you know, I was really surrounded by 40-year-old-plus men who didn't necessarily want a woman there or a girl as they saw me. And I pretty much, I was 21, so I'm not pretending I was older than I was. And they didn't want someone who was 21 there. And they kind of thought, well, she didn't earn it. She wasn't here, you know. Oh, I didn't know you felt that kind of unwelcome from the start. I didn't feel it. I was told. I mean, that's the thing. Like, this kind of stuff doesn't, at least, I think now it's more coded. Like, back then, it, it wasn't coded. It was, we don't want you here. Or you're only here because someone had to fill a quota. Or you're too young for this. Like, that kind of stuff. And, like, directly and out loud. Um... So, I don't think of you that way as a pioneer because mm -hmm. the, the, no, the women who came right before you, before the Lisa me. Olsons yes. had to walk Christine in the locker Brennan. rooms. Yes, yes. Like, no, 100%. And I always I, make the point that with the players, those women definitely cleared such a path. And I think it was, frankly, harder work within the media than sometimes with the players is that, you know, there was still so much more left to do. Do you remember any specific cruelties that struck you because they were so overt? Somebody just telling you to your face? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, you know, I, a general manager of a team that will remain nameless. Uh, you know, I was put on the beat. Uh, I was very young. I was the first woman to cover that beat. And uh, I did the whole, you know, handshake, you know, hey, I'm, I'm going to be covering your team this year. You know, whatever. Let's let's schedule an appointment to talk. Let's do whatever. And he just told me, he's like, yeah, we, we, I don't think he said, we don't want you here, but he certainly said a version of that. And he's like, I'm not going to help you. He's like, because if you don't get stories, you won't be here very long. So I'm not going to talk to you about stuff. Like my door is closed, basically not open. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, nice to meet you. My, my door, door is closed. totally closed to you all and the time. And clearly transmitted that to some of his players who were uncomfortable. Again, they just had never had a woman regularly in their locker room. I'm sure there have been women who crossed in there, but they hadn't regularly had one. And, um, and I had several key players on the team who gave me one-word answers. And it was, you know, very clearly the idea was they're going to make sure I wasn't good at my job and that... Um, that would get me out of there, which is what they wanted, because they couldn't explicitly get me out of there. The era had passed where they would be able to say, like they did with Christine Brennan or Lisa Olson or any of those women who I wouldn't be here without. I want to make that super clear. Um, 
you know, that was the real fight. We don't want women in the locker room. We're going to fight it, that kind of thing. That era had passed, and now it was, we have to have you here, but we're going to make sure you don't stay. And, you know, mm. like everything else, you keep coming to work, and eventually people, you know, that became, it's funny, it turned into a really good situation for me, but um, not before the GM was fired and replaced. So, <laughs> What did the dream... I lasted longer than he did. <laughs> what did the dream look like for you then? Like, what, what were you dreaming of? Certainly, it didn't look like this, right? No. You have You have overachieved beyond your wildest dreams, well, correct? different. I don't say overachieved. It's differently achieved because I want to be a newspaper writer. So I grew up in Washington, D.C. in that area. And I read Tony Kornheiser and Mike Wilbon and Christine Brennan and Thomas Boswell and all those guys in the newspaper. And they were gods to me. I mean, the talent level of the Washington Post sports section mm -hmm. um, when I was a kid and when I first joined it, because I got to, very lucky and got to start working there um, in my early 20s, was just, I mean, it's off the charts. You, you look back at those names. And I read All the President's Men 600 times in high school and um, just thought the Washington Post was the be-all, end-all. I went to print journalism school. I did not go to TV school at all, never picked up a camera. I think now you're kind of required to learn a little bit of everything. That was not the case. Like they had a broadcast degree and they had a print degree and I got a print degree and never in any way, shape or form wanted to be on television, had any thought of being on television, just wanted to be a writer, wanted to do what those guys did. Um, that was another place I interned in college and they were so warm and adopting me and Tony and Mike are like my uncles in the business. And um, Christine had a huge effect on me because she was the first woman to cover a pro NFL beat. So she was the first woman to regularly be on the beat for an NFL team, which was kind of the last bastion of, you know, that. And... <laughs> um, I read her in the newspaper every day when I was still in high school and didn't know. I didn't know she was the first woman on an NFL beat. I didn't know she was the only woman on an NFL beat. I just knew that I loved that football. I loved that football team. And the person who I would read about them from pre-internet was I would open up the Washington Post in the morning and it was Christine Brennan. So by the time I learned that there weren't almost any women in that position or that, that she was the first or any of that, like it was already done for me. Nobody could have told me like, oh, women can't do this because my starting point was that a woman had done this. So those kinds of formative experiences, Tony, Mike and Christine and all of that made me, I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to work for that paper. And if I had done that for the rest of my life, I would have been happy. And frankly, I worked there for almost 10 years and the only reason I left was because newspapers went through a huge industry change. And um, I like to say, because newspapers existed back then. Obviously, uh, a lot of stuff's been revived, the Washington Post in particular, which is awesome. But at the time, it was a real bottom dropping out of what you could do. And, you know, I started at the Washington Post and for years was able to, I covered tennis and I went to all four Grand Slams for the whole two weeks. I mean, budgets like that don't exist um, in newspapers no, our stories anymore. are similar. I think they're you know. parallel. This isn't something that I imagined myself doing. Right. It's just uh, I was doing the same thing, reading newspaper yeah. columnists, and it's all I all I ever wanted to be. Was your family supportive of yeah. this from the beginning? Yeah, absolutely. But it was really my thing. Um, they were just like, okay. I mean, when I was 13, I knew what this, I wanted to be, I wanted to be a sports newspaper reporter. And there were, even in college, uh, you have to do a required internship at Northwestern and they have a list of newspapers you can do it at. And Fort Lauderdale Sun Sentinel was one of them. And I went into that in the selection process and just said, 
I want to work in sports, so I want to do a sports internship. It's no good for me to do news. It's not going to get me anywhere. I'm not going to make any connections with anyone I'm going to want a job from. And I had to petition the dean of the school because they'd never done anything like that before. And so it was just sort of a lot of steps like that along the way. I didn't think sports was a serious journalism thing. I was told it was the toy department. And I actually went back and gave the graduation speech at Northwestern about five years ago, which was really cool for me to be able to do. And I brought that up that it was, you know, people tell you one thing and, and you can go do another. But I do want to say when I first got to the Miami Fort Lauderdale area, you were the only one within, I mean, you're about five years older than me. You were the only one within a 15 year age of me. And you were so cool, Dan. Like you, you were like this young, I mean, you were just made columnist, I think. Like you were like everywhere. You had this amazing confidence, at least on the outside. Um, and you. <laughs> <When> everyone <laughs> thinks I have it all together. I don't know what it is that I'm projecting. Oh, I don't on think. That I don't one. think that now. Yeah, you know better now. Like, <laughs> but I was I, 21, and you were the cool 26-year-old, and you had friends. You would. You were kind. I mean, I, I said to your producer Matthew, I don't even know how much you remember this, but to me, it was very formative because nobody was that nice to me. I was living in a new city. I didn't know anyone, and you're like, oh yeah come out for beers with me and my friends, like come, you know, whatever. And, and I, I was like, oh my God, this is, I get, I get to go out with Dan Lemitard and, and his guys and do whatever and hang out. And it was very much like, okay, someone I can at least relate to. And I wouldn't say we were particularly close, but it was one of those things where it's just like what you meant in terms of, okay, like there's someone else there that is also probably being told he's too young and not quite accepted in the old guard and that kind of thing. So it meant a lot to me. And it's funny, Matthew said to me, he's like, oh, and what advice did Dan have for you about journalism or making it? I was like, nothing. He, we never talked about that. He just was someone to go have a beer with. And that was actually really important. Well, I didn't know anything then. I was I, It was too young for me to even be well, a columnist. I, said, yeah. I, didn't, I didn't know what my voice was going to be or what yeah. it should be. I look back at some of the stuff that I wrote back then. It was not, uh, it was not, I mean, I've got diametrically opposed viewpoints <laughs> to what, what do you know when you're in your early 20s yes. about writing uh, larger op opinion pieces? But uh, because some of this, I'd like some of this to be uh, biographical, like your early years were like what? How do you arrive at being someone who's interested in this stuff? I mean, I, I, I love the football team. And, you know, I was just in, entranced. We can go through the three names they've had since I was a kid, the commanders now. Um, but, uh, you know, they won three Super Bowls from the time I was like, I want to say like eight years old to when I was in college. Like, it was just a really fun team. The city was so into them. And that got me in. That was the gateway. And that got me into other sports. But I Was there any connection with family members? Like no. for me, for, because for me, it was my it was the way to connect with my father. Uh the, my father sort of introduced me to sports, and uh, I would say that um, my father and I were closer than my brother was with mm -hmm. my father just because I took an interest in this as a connection point Did with my dad. Did you know it at the time? Did you I, do it on purpose? No, I, I, no, I did not know that I was being impacted this way. I, I was just searching for ways to connect with my father, and this was an easy place that didn't require a lot of conversation. But what did you love about it? What was the thing that got you? Was it just I like watching games? Was it something more broad? Well, I mean, at the beginning, it's just that I'm showing up at the Orange Bowl, mm -hmm. and my life as an exile is very small. Mm -hmm. And I'm walking into an amusement park that might as well been for me. I had no access. We didn't have money. So even Disney World wasn't right. available to me. Yep. So you're going from small exile life to this sprawling 
place that's noisy and you're holding your father's hand as he takes you through the jostle and you just get sort of changed there, uh, especially because like it was a good place for me to uh, have a deeper bond with my father. My father would then go like... Uh, originally my father would show up to my baseball games and get very mad because I was striking out and stuff. He'd show up after work with his tie and stuff. And my mom would explain to him, look, I, I can teach him a lot of things, but I like being a man is something like you have to your teach department, him. buddy. Yeah. And so he would then become the coach of my teams and stuff. And so that was just a place because my father, my father, uh, very old school Cuban, sort of emotionally uh, limited. And so I, it was just a place where I could feel something, feel connected to him in a way that I would I would assume any child uh, needs. You know what's so awesome? You're talking about your dad and we all know him. Like, that's what's so great is that you're, I'm picturing this because, I mean, I've personally met your father, but your whole audience knows him. And like, that's, that's very cool. Yeah. Just I mean, an aside. That was the, that's the greatest, yeah, I've said this before, it's just the greatest professional blessing of my life to be able to to grow old with him mm -hmm. on television and uh, to share him with an audience that, uh, like, he was, uh, I, I met your friend Matt Barnes the mm -hmm. other day, and this was something that was startling to me, it's still startling to me, even though it happens all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, Matt Barnes only wanted to talk about my father. The connection point between me and Matt Barnes was not sports or anything mm -hmm. else it's him and his friends mm -hmm. uh they had some sort of connection to that dynamic i don't that wasn't orchestrated we did that just because they needed a latin show on espn right. where they were underrepresent with latins and mm -hmm. i don't look or sound or mm -hmm. act latin and so we put a cartoon latin <laughs> accent next to me no that's what we did and so and and then people got to know him but god what a I can't ex I can't articulate to you what a blessing it it was to have that experience with him for for eight years introducing America to him in a way, uh, you know, that gave him a little more validation than being a factory manager in Hialeah. And it just like for for the rest of us, it's it was great to get to know him and all those years of watching him and how he was with you. But it's a way to get to know you because for a long time, Dan, you didn't let anyone get to know you on the air. Well, this is what my father says. Like this, what my father said about this was, and man, I had a breakthrough with my, my my wife just the other day, where I'm I'm like weeping at a table because she is forcing me to accept that he did and did and does love me in the way that he can show. And he always said that he was there, and the only reason he was there that he didn't want to do television, mm -hmm. which seemed that it's sort of. I didn't understand that my father's going from uh, being a plant factory manager to being on television and being mm -hmm. a popular person and didn't really want it. That the only reason that he was doing this, the only reason is because he wanted people to get to know the parts of me that he knew and mm -hmm. that he saw. And uh, yeah, I always thought I was doing it for him. Like, I always thought that this was a favor of my family. I would say none of us are very good at receiving love. Mm -hmm. And this one I was forced to right. receive by my wife because she sort of put on me like, no, you're not. This is not something that you were doing for him. He was doing it for you. It was it was reciprocal. Mm -hmm. It was together. Uh, anyways, off off topic. Well, so to to get back to you in the stadium holding his hand, I think for me, um, yes, my stepdad loved football games. So we'd watch them on Sunday together. Um, but that wasn't 
it wasn't a huge part of our relationship or our life. It was just a nice thing to get to do. My mom loved the Olympics, so we watched the Olympics a lot. Um, but for me, it was just almost individual, just sort of falling in love. And um, I think it was a few different things. I think it was loud and exciting and colorful and people hit each other. And I still really like that. That's why I like football and hockey so much. Um, but uh, also, you know, it had a defined beginning, middle and end. And there were heroes and villains. And your team's the heroes, obviously. Someone else's team is their heroes. But, um, you know, that idea of that story... Um, you know, I had a somewhat chaotic childhood. And then I think everyone by definition has a chaotic adolescence. And the idea that that function was there and that it was defined. And I knew exactly what time it was going to happen. And when I was petitioning Northwestern to do that a sports internship and sort of allow them to recognize sports as a thing, um, you know, one thing I said is I said, you know, I didn't want to be covering something where I was just asking everyone else what happened. So if there's a huge fire that breaks out, you know, you're, you get there by the time it's all ashes and you ask the people what happened and how did it start and all of that. And if you cover sports, the fire breaks out at 1 p.m. on Sundays and you can be there for the whole thing and you can actually witness what's going on. And I think that idea, even before I knew I was going to be a journalist or before I got into being a journalist, was that was really appealing to me. And then the stadium part is the first time I did get to go to a game. Um, it really struck me that I had never before in my life seen 60,000 people happy at the same time. And that moment in a game when just the huge like wall of sound happens and people are cheering and jumping and high-fiving these strangers next to them or everyone upset at the same time. And but not angry. those emotions not present in a delivery room, like uh, when no. you get the big job promotion, right. people jumping up and down for joy right. is very rare and, anywhere in life. And to have that happen in the same space with that many people, it's literally nowhere else. We don't experience that anywhere else. And that became very addicting to me also. You craved order, though? The order of it is something that you crave? The yeah. schedule? Scheduling of it is something that you crave. Why is that? I, I just, it, it let me, and to the presence of it, it just let me be able to, again, I think that if there's, you're kind of searching for stuff in your life and you're like, oh, this is orderly. I know when it starts. I know when it finishes. I know it has a beginning, middle, and end. That was very appealing to me. Um, but I, I think to the sort of way that you can put, I think when, when I was younger, it was how do I have the things I'm thinking about or dealing with in my life, how can I sort of make that a metaphor for what is going on in, in this game or in these sports? And I think that was very helpful for me. But I then sort of, as I got older and looked at it from a more broad professional sense, it really became, well, what is this game saying about all of our lives or about life? And that was something that was super appealing to me. The sociology also. of sports is so much more interesting than everything else. It's, it's, and it's the only place we do it anymore. So like, if you look at all the numbers on the things that used to be communal, I mean, it's been talked about to death. Obviously, we don't watch the same shit anymore, right? So, like, you have part of the country that watches these kinds of movies and TV shows, and you have part of the country that watches these kinds of movies and TV shows. But it's not just that. So, first of all, it's a big deal, right? We don't even follow the same news. We don't agree on the same facts, like that kind of thing. But then church and religious worship for all religions is way down in this country than it used to be. So it used to be that every Saturday or every Sunday, people would gather and, and hear messaging from whatever that religion was. Well, that doesn't happen anymore. Um, you know, voting is, you know, not something that, you know, we had a record turnout for the last presidential election, and it's still at, what, half the country. You know what I mean? It's not something that we all do. And the one thing we all do is watch games. And you know that this is true because if you look every year at the top 20 
things that, that people have watched that season. They're all sporting events. Like, they're all sporting events. I think there's one in the teens that was like the Oscars. No, it's top 100. Is and all, then is all, the top 100 you have is all to get football. to like almost 30 before mm-hmm. you get to Yellowstone, you know. Mm-hmm. But I mean, that's the thing. So it is where we have these conversations now about domestic violence, about police brutality, about sort of this split in America and, and how we can all get on the same page and, and how we talk to each other. And that fascinated me from the beginning also. And I don't know if that's order, but it, it is sort of like a way to look at something and, and a way to make sense of everything else going on around you. A lot has changed over the years, but one thing that hasn't, the great taste of Miller Lite. Man, we was just watching Celtics versus Nuggets last night. And the catalyst to the party, the vibe, the vibe changer, the mood increaser was the Miller Lite cooler in the middle of the living room. Salute the Miller Lite, man. And when you're out having a great time, oh my goodness, you want to reach for a beer that's reliable. And I cannot name, think of, or even ponder a more reliable beer than Miller Lite. Can you dig it? Times change, but you can always enjoy the great taste of Miller Lite. Hmm. Tastes like Miller time. To get Miller Lite delivered right to your door, visit MillerLite.com beach. Or you can find it pretty much anywhere that sells beer. Celebrate responsibly. Miller Brewing Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. 96 calories per 12 ounces. Yiddick! When you look at the difficulties that yeah. you had, which are the ones uh, on the professional path, which are the ones that you look at where you're like, I had no training for that. I had no expectation of that. I think sort of how to navigate, um, first of all, TV in general. That was a huge leap. You know, I started doing some TV sort of on the side when I was still at the Washington Post. Uh, I did some appearances. My first TV appearances ever were uh, appearing on the Washington Capitals home team sports, you know, TV station to talk about what was going on in the games. Um, And then gradually I started doing things for Mark Shapiro when he was running ESPN and some outside the lines stuff on the side. And um, that's a very different thing than, hey, you're going to work at ESPN full time now. And you're going to be doing a lot, you know, lots of different kinds of things. And I didn't know how to navigate that. I never intended to be on TV. I had no training of being on TV. I was only there basically because I was following the resources. Like I loved, I love being at games. I love being at stuff. I love, you know, when I think about some of the most exciting moments of my professional life, it's it's not in a TV studio. It's, it's witnessing like these great moments in history. And at the time, newspapers and my newspaper like stopped being able to do that for a while. And ESPN could and did. So that was the reason I was there. And to then try to figure out the TV part was really hard because not only did I have no training, I didn't look or sound like anyone wanted me to look or sound like. Um, Very much at the time, and frankly, still now, they want a cute young thing. And, um, you know, I ran up into, hey, you're not blonde. Hey, you're not tall and thin. Like, hey, you're not polished and anchory sounding on TV. And was told over and over again by my bosses, sort of like, oh, you're not going to be that for us. And, you know, you're in a different category. And, um, you know, the the long-term big success in TV isn't there for you because you don't look and sound like like we expect women to look like. And I was trying very hard to be as close to what was the, out there as I could. 
And Stuart Scott actually pulled me aside at one point and we become kind of friendly through, you know, some of the stuff I've been covering. And he's just like, Rachel, what are you doing? And I was very taken aback and still pretty new there and, you know, kind of like, well, what's, what the hell is this? <laughs> um, and he's like, who are you trying to be out there? And I just sort of went a mini version of what I just said. And he's like, yeah, it's not going to happen. He's like, you're not growing. You're not getting taller. He's like, you're not going to sound like you've been at a TV desk since you were, you know, 20. You're not going to, you know, my style is not this sort of glossy presenter kind of thing, which was very much what everyone wanted then. And he said that, you know, his style, which was so different, as we all know, um, was something that he fought with people he worked for for years about, that they told him for years that they didn't want that. And they didn't want him to be all the things that we now revere and think about Stuart for. And, you know, it's funny to me sometimes to see the, the people who told him not to be who he turned out to be. Mm -hmm. sort of now posthumously taking credit for that, which is having been there with him is Oh, he had it disappointing. tough. He had it really tough there. And that, and that, you know, he fought against that every day and they didn't want him to be that. And he said to me, he said, I can be 100% good at being me or I can be, I'm never going to top 75% good at being anyone else, no matter how hard I try. And 75% isn't going to cut it in this business. So he's like, either you go out and you're 100% of you and they like it or they don't. He's like, but I know you're not going to succeed the other way. And I was like, great, but I'm not you. You're big and important now. And I'm just trying and I'm sort of being told, no, no, this is what we want. And he was just like, yeah. He's like, but that's not actually what's going to help you out. He's like, this is what's going to help you out. And that was a real sea change for me in terms of how I did the job and how I talked on TV. And, you know, my style is very much like, okay, here's what's going on. And here's what I think about it. And, oh, that light just fell. Show the light. What, what the hell is happening here in the studio? Mm -hmm. um, which still to this day, some of, you know, I've had bosses in different companies who have been like, eh, it's not really what we want. We don't need a fourth wall. And I'm like, but that's who I am. Mm -hmm. And that well, was... people appreciate authenticity. They do. The people who will grab... Not only will they appreciate it, they notice it yeah. too, because the veneer of television uh, can lack some intimacy. Did you experience those things, those overt things that are, uh, you know, nasty and unpleasant. Did you experience them as unfairness that made you angry or bitter? Or did were you just like, this is how it is? This is how it's going to be? This doesn't seem right. There was a lot of, of the latter of just sort of, I mean, I, I definitely always felt like, oh, well, you know what you're getting into. Like, if you wanted the, a level playing field, this is the wrong business. And I think I just accepted that for a long time. And you knew, you knew you were getting into that. You knew. I mean, you, you know, knew you were, you were new. You knew you're entering sports, and it's going to be a fight. You're going to have to fight. Yes, and and that's the thing is I had grown up kind of a scrapper and knew going into the job I'd have to be a scrapper, and then really had to be a fucking scrapper for a long time. And I think that that approach, you know, in the end, sometimes is hard for other people you work with. And the problem is that I would never have gotten anywhere any other way. And I was sort of, you know, 
over and over again beaten down with, you know, well, this isn't for you or you're not good enough to do this. And only by like coming back and coming back and coming back and being like, I'm still showing up and I'm still doing it and I'm still going to, you know, hold on to this is the is the only way I got anything done. And that was largely because I came in at a time when, again, I was not the first. I don't want to claim ever I was in that first wave because I wouldn't even have had the shot without those other women. But it was still, it was a long time ago. And you talk about 25, 30 years ago, it was a long time ago. And I think we're so conditioned now to what we see on TV and what we see on the internet in terms of, of where women are. And by the way, it's still, still have a long way to go in terms of any sort of level playing field, but it was so different then. And... I sort of had the attitude of, well, you knew what you were getting into. So, you know, when a bunch of the stuff happened of, you know, two weeks on a job, I had a supervisor send me an email on company fucking email saying, this is what I want to do to you sexually. Oh, no. And you're just like, I've been here two weeks. <laughs> How do I deal with this? Or, um, you know, when I was pregnant... Uh, I waited so long to tell them. I waited so long because I knew that this was not going to be good for me professionally. And I oh, even what a terrible feeling. debated. I mean, I, I was married for 10 years before I decided to have kids. And a big part of that consideration was, A, do I want a little human in my life? But also, um, how is this going to affect the thing that I've scrapped for, that I've worked for so hard, that has been like the thing that I've been able to finally break through and start doing more. Um, and I knew, again, I knew what I was getting myself into. So I sort of accepted it, but also knew I had to navigate it. And I was told by a high up person, um, literally, I sat down to have the conversation of like, oh, I'm pregnant. But and I, I like the words tumbled out. It was like, but I have, you know, oh, it's twins. I was pregnant with twins, um, but I am going to have full time living help so I can still get on a plane anytime you want. That's part of why I waited. Like that is part of why we waited so long was to get to a point in our life where we could say, great, we're hiring someone to help out because you can't do all of this alone. Um, and uh you know, this is how it's going to be and you won't notice a difference and whatever, whatever. And I had the executive look at me and say, well, I, this is great. Congratulations. I'm so happy for you. It's been so nice working with you. And I was like, no, remember the part five minutes ago about whatever? And he was just like, right. But I mean, you're not going to really be able to do the job you do now. And then I don't know what that's going to mean and whatever. And I said, but I am because of all the stuff I just said. <laughs> and I said... I like looked across at his desk where he had pictures of him and his family. And I was just like, you, I mean, I'm like stammering. I like completely not composed. I thought it was an episode of Mad Men, which was on the air at the time. And I was just like, this isn't real. But, but you have kids. I was like, look, look, look at you. You have kids. And he looked at me and he said, Rachel, children need their mothers. Oof. And I was just like, okay. Um, and you know, there's, there's all sorts of things along the way, like those things that for a long time, I just sort of accepted. And I think later in my career, I started to sort of fight back and stand up for some of those things. Like the idea of women as interchangeable parts, which is still a huge thing in television of sort of like, great, we've got one. Oh, we want to hire another one. We're going to get rid of that one. Or let's just move them around to solve another problem because like, it doesn't matter. They're just the woman on set. We wouldn't do that with the men, right? 
we'll move them to a different sport. We'll move them to a different thing. We'll move them whatever, because like they're just apart as opposed to. Was there a time or an age where you sort of came to the adulthood of, no, I'm not going to keep accepting this. I'm going to start like punching people in the face. Yeah, for sure. And, and I think that that ultimately cost me and, uh, I wouldn't, do it differently in terms of standing up for that. I might have done it differently in how I stood up for that. But I really felt a sense at the time, and I talked about this with one, a couple of the women I worked with at the time, of I just don't want like, it to be like this for all the women who keep coming. And I just, if someone, if I, if I don't say stuff about this stuff, you know, who is? And I don't want to make myself out into some crusading hero because I was not. But I just, it was just literally as simple as starting to not just accept everything. And there still isn't a lot of room for that in where this or when business. though? Do you, well, like, was there is there a spot because you have to have the bravery and the confidence of I have power and security enough to exert it. Yes, and that's not the easiest thing with bosses. For me, I've always respected or tried to respect authority. Yeah. So no, I'm not I'm, yes. not I'm not interested no, in embarrassing you want to be the good people. Soldier, right? Well, but not so much that it costs me my principles. Like I I do want to help my employer. I'm not looking to cause problems, but on things like you can't become numb to this or you can't be someone as strong as you, Rachel, can't get defeated by this Mm -hmm. or quit or say like, this is how it's going to be. I'm going to be okay with a man having family pictures on his desk telling me that I can't have a family Mm -hmm. and work at the Mm -hmm. same time. I think, I think, um, so I've been very, fortunate i'm right now i'm working at showtime and i have a show on on the network and it's a show that i created and 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 thought of with the producers i work with and executing with them and that's the third show i've had where i've been able to from not just be rotated into some network show but to think of the show launch the show have it be my vision for the show do it on three different networks and i think getting that process starts to make you more confident in I'm not just doing what everybody else I'm not I'm not doing your thing. We're collaborators. I certainly couldn't do it without you network, but we're collaborators on this thing. And therefore I had felt like I had a little more standing to use my voice when this stuff came up. And again, it's not received great a lot of the time. And and I think that's still something women are dealing with. I mean the age of women in this business is always very young, you know, and it was, it helped me when I was young, by the way, like definitely helped me out when I was young. They were like, oh, she's young and she's, she's a little bit of a prodigy. So great. We get both packages, but you know, you look at, you look at the time and continuing on through today, sure like women in their twenties and that's happened my whole career. And unfortunately as a woman, you can't stay in your twenties forever. <laughs> I mean, although we're in LA and some people do try. <laughs> I mean, when did you, for you, like, I feel like when I met you, you were already at age 26, a little bit of a like leaning into being a wild child. And I don't know if that was an act because you were maybe internally trying to please the people around you or above you, but you definitely were leaning into, I'm a maverick. I come at this differently. I don't give a crap what you expect me to say or do or defer to the coach or anything like that? I uh, I would say I was just young mm-hmm. um, and I was having success and I had the privilege of being allowed to be dumb because I was pretty good at what I was doing mm-hmm. and so I was being rewarded. I didn't have these kinds of difficulties. Like right. I, I was... Uh, 
and I, I was viewed, I, I, I was so young that much of that behavior, that's not me, mm-hmm. like that was just somebody who was not yet adult. I right. would say that Cuban kids grow up a little bit slower. And so I was so consumed with sort of getting to work and destination that the only place that I was a bit adult is in the thing that I could produce. I was still a child in many other ways. Not, I didn't, I mean, in some ways, I didn't grow up until I got to my 40s, but I mm-hmm. would legitimately say that adulthood wasn't something that I experienced until my 30s. Like, in my 20s, I was not. Man, you uh, wrote like an adult, though. Uh, well, but that's why I got away. That's why I got away with some of that stuff. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't nearly, it, it wasn't the same thing at all. I had a, a, a golden path compared to what it is that you're talking well, about. Well, and by the way, I did have help from colleagues along the way. So Jason Cole, who worked with us down in South Florida, uh, was the Dolphins beat writer when I was sort of the backup floating between the dolphins and the hurricanes. And um, (laughs) a lot of days, um, Don Shula would see me and give me too much of a hug and (laughs) put his arm around me in ways that kept the hand kept moving. Oh, no. And he was very old and I was very young and it was very weird. And Jason kept like running interference. He would like sort of stand in a way where, you know, and he would sort of (laughs) come around or just sort of be like, you know, and also, you know, kind of, Physically, that must have been so nice for you to have some of these colleagues uh, forever by your side. And you know, again, I mentioned Mike and Tony were always great. And by the way, my boss at the Washington Post, George Solomon, was exceptional and hired women and like gave me the confidence to do the job when the people outside of the paper were giving me a hard time. So I think that helped too. I mean, you can't can't do it alone. You can't fight all that stuff alone. Remember the best vacation you've ever taken? Make your next one even better with Get Your Guide. With Get Your Guide, you can book over 100,000 unforgettable experiences in the U.S. and around the world. Want to see the Grand Canyon from a helicopter? They got you. Watching a wrestling match in Mexico City? No problem. Or how about a guided tour of Rome's ancient ruins? Wherever you're going, whatever you're into, book your next travel experience at getyourguide.com. Are you proud of how strong you are? Yeah, I think so. I think I think it's something I, I have daughters. I have two daughters. I'm, I'm trying to teach them. I think you have to be in this society that we have with, you know, being female. I don't mean to be all, you know, make anything. It's, it's never a single-sided issue. It's never about being a woman only. But it's silly to not acknowledge that you have to be tougher in a lot of ways. I mean, there's the, you know, did you see the Barbie movie? I have not seen it yet. There's a speech that's been put all over social media and talked about a lot and analyzed that America Ferreira gives. And she talks about all the things women have to be in this society. And you have to be really strong and tough to even start to navigate that. And I think the women you've worked with all fit into that category, right? Look how strong and tough Mina is. Like Sarah, like look at all the women that you sort of have gravitated toward. They're all really strong. But they've gotten strong inside of the industry. I would say they had to learn some of the things that you learned earlier. Yes. I think that they, I don't think uh, that they had to endure. Well, Sarah did uh, some of it, but Mina was in business. But in, you got to that stuff a little bit younger yes. than uh, than most people do. How did you become a scrapper? Like when you describe yourself a scrapper, how did that, how does that happen? Because the thing I fell in love with didn't want me. I mean, that's, it's, it's that simple, you know, that I, I love sports 
And it's so funny in television, especially, um, you know, there are people, men and women, who want to be on TV and sports is the vehicle to get them on TV. And there are people who are very attractive and are sort of picked up as being like, hey, you should be on TV or let me encourage you to be on TV or you have dreams of being on TV and you just sort of fall into whatever the niche is, sports, entertainment, whatever it is that can get you there. Um, for me, very much so, TV is the way I could keep doing sports after the original industry of sports that I was in had a big shift. And I loved it. I still love it. I want to go to games all the time. I'm going tonight to the Lakers Suns game. Um, you know, I have plenty of colleagues who are in the level of the business I am who barely ever go to an actual football or basketball game or anything like that for work, not just for fun. And I go all the time. And I I love it. And you're, I loved you're Bob it. Bob Ryan. You're I, Bob Ryan of <laughs> Bob Ryan will still check out a college basketball game in Jacksonville just because he loves it like that. And that, you know, it wasn't a hospitable environment, as we've discussed. But so, that unwelcome, huh? Like perpetual, you always felt it, the drape of the, because you just put it very well, the mm -hmm. thing that I love didn't love me back. Mm -hmm. It was, but that can't feel that way now, right? Like you've, you've gotten so, it still yeah. feels like you've gotten so much acceptance uh, it, from, so you've earned so much acceptance mm -hmm. that I wouldn't assume that you feel unwelcome now. No, no, not at all. But that's what formed who I am. I mean, for you, you had this easier path that you just said you have a golden path. How did that influence how you navigated through things? I mean, I became spoiled and I make a lot, I made a lot of uh, mistakes like for, for, I am, I am mortified that you thought of me as a wild child, uh, because that's not, uh, look at me, like that's not who I've, it's not who Maybe I've Maverick ever been. Maverick is more, more appropriate, like a honing of that term. But yeah, that idea of you were not in the mold of what everybody well, I else always, around. I always thought some of the stuff was silly, right? Like I remember having an argument with Renee Latchman in his underwear because the team is 30 and 31 and I'm questioning some fifth inning decision that he made. He's like, what are you doing? I'm like, it's all sports. Who cares? Right. And he's dedicated his, his life, life to, to it. This. And yeah. I don't have an appreciation yet mm -hmm. because I'm too young and too dumb mm -hmm. to know, wait a minute, they're not just playing games. This is their identity. They right. care about this stuff deeply. They're not just <laughs> fooling around. Right. I just don't know enough about life. And so I was too young to, uh, to, be, a, to be a columnist. But I well, can't what's the say, biggest mistake you made? Oh my God! I mean, well, I know you said you you say you made a lot, and it's you've been in a lot of jobs from then to now. Yeah. Is there I, one thing that if you if if you could pick to do over, you would do differently? I, I I mean, I've done a lot of learning in adulthood that makes regret feel pretty useless mm -hmm. because even things that were mistakes ended up in a pain at the time that became growth mm -hmm. or something that forced me into change. So I've you know, I've gotten better at sort of being gentle with myself on where it is that I've made errors. But I look back on a number of the things that I wrote in my 20s about, you know, just skewering Alonzo Mourning for his lack of loyalty uh, when that's just not how I think anymore. And I understand the business of sports better and I'm more adult. I've learned things and have more perspective. But wherever it is that I have harmed people, like I try to be an empath and compassionate uh, in, in the state of my life that I am now, but I didn't know enough about myself, the games I was covering, or mm -hmm. anything else to be that. Then I'm following—you have to keep in mind, I imagine this was similar for you, because 
what I'm seeing rewarded with success is whatever Mike Lupica is doing yeah. as a columnist. Sure. Or so I, I'm looking for my voice. What's my voice going to be? How is this done by others? And so you're copycatting, you're borrowing, and you're filing it under learning when it's not it's not yet learning. The learning will come when you've made the mistakes of doing that. And Stuart Scott has to pull you aside and be like, what are you doing? You right. kind of got to be yourself. Right. No, 100%. Well, I think you had... I think you always made interesting choices within, you use the fact that you had opportunities from a young age to make more interesting choices than a lot of other people did. And I always followed that about you. And that was one of the things that fascinated me the most, even after we weren't working in the same market anymore, um, was, okay, he has a lot of these opportunities and he's doing something different with them than other people did you set out to do that? Well, or? what what I was consistently doing, and I haven't thought about it until now, what I was consistently doing from very early on is the cluster of reporters would go over here and I would just go someplace yes. else because I'm like, well, but it was, it was just a practical efficiency matter. Like, <laughs> I can get something for myself over here or Not I can just... Not reporting, though, but in the career choices you've made. Um the career choices I have made have largely been sort of forced growth that goes back a ways. A long time ago, Pat Riley told me in a magazine story that I was working on that if he could do it the most bravely on uh, career choices to, ma to maximize his human growth, if it were possible to do, he would change careers every 10 years. Okay. Now, if it were possible to sure. do that, uh, so I haven't... Did Pat Riley want to be a fireman? Um, uh, I don't think a fireman is probably what he'd choose, but it probably, it might be something Schenectady related, but something where growth is, is required. Right. Um, I've sort of done that with my career, I've, but within, within the confines of where it is you can do things professionally. In my 20s, I was mostly a writer. In my mm -hmm. 30s, I was trying all of it, mm -hmm. radio, television, and writing, and, mm -hmm. and doing that. And then in my 40s, it became an amalgamation of the things, and now I don't write very much And in anymore. your 50s, you decided, oh, I can also have a personal life. Uh, and, and Well, <laughs> I can try to have a personal life while also running a business, because you, just, you said something a second ago that struck me. You're like, well, I can't do it by myself. Mm -hmm. I need the help of a network, and mm -hmm. here I am. I'm like, kind of the network. Now, I got to make the but network. that's changed. Like it's, that's changed over the years, right? Mm -hmm. So you couldn't do what you're doing now, even 10, 15 years ago. You certainly couldn't have done it 25 years ago when you were starting, like that, or sorry, 35 years ago when you were starting. Um, <laughs> that, uh, you enjoyed that, that a little too much. Love it. Um, you know, the barrier to entry is so different, right? I mean, when we started out, you know, you had to literally own I mean, I guess there was cable. Yes, there was cable, of course, when I started. But well, I mean, when I started. It was three networks. Three networks, it's right? Three channels. So there were three people making decisions about who could be on TV. And even once there was cable, there was really only like a dozen people making decisions about who could be on TV. And it was like that for a really long time. And it wasn't just TV; it was the newspaper. Like you had to own a printing press. You had to own distribution networks to get the paper to someone's door in the morning. Like you, you couldn't just have people with alternate opinions. Um, and for athletes, I know that was super frustrating because now they can sort of have their own platforms and voice either formally or informally on social media, but it wasn't like that. And they could only deliver what they wanted to say through the funnel of, frankly, at those times, people who didn't look like them, didn't talk like them, didn't understand who they were, or where they came from, or what they were dealing with. And and I think on the athlete side, that was really hard. And then on the young person trying to break into the business side, that was really hard. And now it's completely changed. And you don't need all of that. And you can be damn retired and have your own empire. 
<laughs> uh, it uh, it looks like an empire, and it looks like you. Uh, it looks like I know what I'm doing, and I. It doesn't I, look like you know what you're doing, but it looks like you have your own empire. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't want to uh, make you uncomfortable with any of the radioactive ESPN stuff, so I will stay away from it, so that you don't get aggregated or so something terribly unpleasant doesn't happen. But I would like to know what you learned in the aftermath of mm-hmm. you. You leave ESPN and then what is in front of you is what? Because it seemed from afar and I hurt for you um, like that would be a really scary thing to go through that would still, like I was saying, not have regret in it now Mm -hmm. because of whatever it forced you into that opened up a new path that you may not have chosen if not forced upon you. So it's interesting. There's two sort of concurrent philosophies I had that one was really helpful in that time and one I had to learn to sort of get myself out of at that time. The thing that was really helpful was I didn't start at ESPN. I I left ESPN one other time before. I went to go work for Turner and CNN. I came back. So this was me leaving again. ESPN didn't give me my card to be a journalist. They didn't punch my ticket. They didn't. I had I'd worked other places for a decade before I even got there. I had established my identity and who I was. I had worked for multiple big media companies. So I had the perspective and had always sort of seen it as, yeah, I'll work here for a while and then I'll work somewhere else because I've worked other places before I got here and I'll work other places after I get here and that kind of thing. And I think some people in the ESPN system and it feels so big, it's sort of all you can see and then it, it, you don't have that perspective. And I think one of the nice things about getting older in this business is that you really do learn what you can't know when you're younger, which is that like, yeah, something seems huge and then three years later, it doesn't. And I think about Marv Albert. If you lived, if you were a sports fan who lived through the Marv Albert back page of the New York Post every day trials situation, um, you would never have thought 10 years later he would be where he was much less 20 years later, much less, you know, everything that he went on to do. That um, there's so many different people who have gone through so many things that you learn as you get older in the business. And I don't even mean scandals. I mean, just stuff, you know, oh, I had a show and then it got canceled or, oh, I have worked at this newspaper and then I left and then it didn't turn out the way I hoped. And I joined, uh, remember the national? Yeah. Like, you know, the national was sort of the precursor to the athletic and a more, uh, best physical, sports writers all gathered in one place, in one place, super expensive lineup of sports writing talent. And guess what? Went under and all those people didn't have jobs. And it seemed like the end of the world. And yet, guess what? They all got, they were great. They were super talented and they all got jobs again. And having watched that over the years with other people and having known myself with my own experience of being like, yeah, this network isn't what gave me entree to be myself or do my job. Like they had me because I already was that person. That really helped me in that time because I was able to sort of continue on that track. What I didn't know how to do and have only learned since was I had always worked for in an almost like gold retirement watch uh, sense of this is how you this is how you do your job. You work for a big media company. You progress from a cub reporter to a beat reporter 
to maybe a national reporter in a sport or doing like features or doing, you know, that kind of thing. And then you can be a columnist right at the newspaper or in TV, you're a field reporter. Then you can come sub in sometimes in the anchor seat. And then, you know, you can be an anchor on someone on a show that's just one of those long running shows. And then maybe you're lucky enough to get your own show that you get to totally create and do. Um, And my thought, because those were the only environments, but even if I switched around networks, it was all within that, you know, work for a big company and retire with a gold watch scenario. I didn't quite understand what it was to kind of be free of that and to be free of all the stuff that was crappy about that. And I mean, you know, we've talked a little bit about like, you know, the rest of your life and work and all of that stuff. But, you know, by the end of my time at ESPN, I was working seven days a week. I, was oh, working. I don't think people have any earthly idea what a beast of a worker you are. I like a working. beast of a worker you are. I like working and I couldn't do it if I didn't like it, but it, it got to be ridiculous. I was in the studio five days a week and then I was out at nationally traveling at games on Saturday and Sunday. And I would joke about it. People would be like, oh, well, when do you work exactly? And I'd be like, oh, I work all the days. Which days do you work? I work all of them. And you almost like think that's a point of pride. It's not. It's dumb. Um, and I think some of the mechanics of working in a big company and the egos and the fighting for resources and scraps and the way women are pitted against each other in these companies and all of these other things, um, and you're dealing with the biases of the people above you and, and everything, um, it's just something I took for granted that it had to be that way. And the wake of that whole experience for me really opened up my eyes. And I knew media had been changing that sort of like idea. I wasn't so head in the sand that I didn't know that, as we just said, the barrier to entries were falling and what people were actually watching and listening to was not the traditional stuff. But you can know that. But when you're in that ESPN world, uh, there is a lot of sort of Stockholm syndrome of this is the only thing that matters. This is cable television is still where things are at. You know, look at this, look at that. And then you get outside of it and you realize that, I mean, I had someone at ESPN again tell me, um, just not not early, but a couple of years before I left, we were talking and he had his phone nearby in his office. And I was talking about how do we get stuff more streaming? How do we make the show also a podcast? How do we, you know, get clips on the different parts of ESPN so that different pe- people who whatever. And the executive literally held up his phone. He's like, people don't watch TV on this, Rachel. They watch TV on that. And I was like... I don't know what world you live in, but this has changed. So I knew that before I left, but I didn't really understand that what had been the, you know, what had been the downsides and then also just the restrictions of living your life. And I work for one company. I do one thing. I follow their train track. I go up that progression. I may switch what that company is, but then I go do that at the other place. Um, And taking a step back really let me see this new media world and be like, oh, I've been here before. I lived through the sort of change shift of newspapers. And I lived through the dinosaur days of then, oh, wow, you're going to have to switch to a different part of the industry. And so I was able to recognize, oh, this is happening again. And I don't think I was outside of it enough to fully see that. And now it's just so obvious. I mean, you know, ask anyone listening to this, you know, other than the games themselves, or maybe, by the way, also the games themselves. 
Where do you consume content? But it, so, but it wasn't motherhood that did that to you, right? It was no. the seismic sort of shake of okay, your career is now in peril or must be different, or mm -hmm. or here you're on your own. Yeah, and and it's so it's that learning. You may never come upon it if not for the pain of of falling down. Yeah, I think I think it just shook me out of understanding where the industry was, and it shook me into sort of understanding also what was important. And I think that, again, you can just, in any job, frankly, and this isn't just that job at that time, but in any job that's consuming, if you are a worker, which I always am, that you you just, everything, you lose perspective of everything else. And I remember, I remember being young before I had kids and thinking like, man, you know, some of these people, not just women, but some of these people are like, oh, I got to take time to be with my family. I'd be like, oh, what suckers? Like, you know, like we all know that's just holding you back from getting to do the thing we're all trying to do. And then, of course, as I have my own kids and then, you know, you sort of are forced to like take a step away from that treadmill and be like, oh, right. The happiest moments I've had in my life were weirdly <laughs> not in an arena in San Antonio at one in the morning. Huh. <laughs> Interesting. And and it's funny, it it sounds dumb that you don't know that already, but like it oh, but if you takes get your, a minute. If you get your identity from your work, like I want to ask you about how you became that kind of worker because for me the thing that I was most taught, I will not insult my, my parents by saying it was the only thing I was taught, but mm -hmm. it was far and away, second sure. place is a distant, distant second. If you work, I mean, I'm the, the, the son of exiles. Mm -hmm. If you work, you will have freedom. Yep. Work equals freedom. But then work can also become the prison where freedom becomes harder to come by because you are your work and you're working too much. You care too much about it. It becomes too much of your identity. Well, I was saying like, oh, in your 50s is when you found out you could also have a personal life, which I think is it's your audience has seen. It's not inaccurate. And, and it's true. Why don't you have kids? Wow, you're really getting in there. Um, I, I, at this point, would say that I'm worried about bringing a child into this world, but I would have a, I'm older now, I'm 54, so the idea of being, you know, having a 17-year-old and be at a, at a graduation and being a grandfather, like if I don't do it right now, it's not, it's not likely to happen, but I am scared of bringing a child into this world. The responsibility of that seems uh, deeply overwhelming to I, me. I agree. I think that is a smart person's way of thinking, and I understand it, and I had those thoughts It also keeps I had me, kids. by the way, from a larger love and and my relationship with my wife growing to a place that it couldn't possibly without kids, because I would assume that the teamwork of raising children together brings a couple together in, in ways that are super magnificent. I would say even just within that first reason, one thing that really I realized, and this was through conversations with my husband and through other people— if you are a person who says, gosh, I don't know about bringing a kid into this world, um, one of the real turning points in my head was, but don't you kind of have a responsibility to bring more people who are thoughtful and community-minded and interested in helping children and the environment and everything else? Because if we don't have kids, the people who do the things that you know we find abhorrent, 
they're still having kids and they're teaching their kids that stuff. Uh-huh. And so, so we have to we have to start. You, I have to have kids so that there can be an army to oppose that army. I'm just saying, so if I you're going to send gonna, my child out with a bayonet into that particular <laughs> fight, if you're going to, I'm a, I didn't lead you down the in this world argument, but mm-hmm. if that's where you're going to live and that's where you're going to maybe possibly let yourself be sheltered by that so you don't have to think about the real stuff about what having kids would mean. I'm knocking down that argument for you. Well, I don't I don't know at this point. I mean, having started a business and everything else, I am not to- and just generally where I am after the death of my brother and just mm-hmm. the difficulties of my life the last couple of years. Um, I'm not sure that having a child wouldn't make me and my wife just get off the grid and not do any of this other stuff that can be fun and nice, but doesn't need to be need to be done. Like some some people in our environment would argue because we now have 44 employees and some of the ones in our world haven't really worked anywhere else that mm-hmm. I have raised without even knowing it. Right. Because this has, been, this has been something that has been startling to me. Without even knowing it, I've raised a bunch of, uh, I'm going to say kids because mm-hmm. like me, some of them are Cuban in their 20s and not grown up in right. their when, when they started doing this. Mm-hmm. And so our environment has uh, inadvertently... I didn't mean to do this. This was very much a surprise to me, but inadvertently working 20 years with people who were in their early 20s when they started, uh, that ends up becoming people you're imprinting for that fight. Mm-hmm. I mean, look, yes, all that's true. But again, I wouldn't bring up the I can't bring kids into this world as my main reason. It was a reason for me, but I, that was my distilling or my uh, counter to that reason. I'm not sure it's your main reason either frankly. I mean, I don't know you that well, so I can't. You believe I'm lying to you? I don't think, I think you may be protecting, I think you're protecting yourself. The, uh, because I've given it precious little thought. Like this is not over the course of my life. I have (laughs) not been spending a lot of time saying that, you know, thinking about should I have children? It's not something that is. I, I didn't either. And by the way, I know there's some sort of supposition like women want kids. And of course she's on there pushing him to have a kid. I didn't like babies. I didn't like being pregnant. Being pregnant was not pleasant. It was not some gooey, nature-y thing for me. Um, I still don't like a lot of other people's kids and have a problem that I will say that out loud sometimes in environments I shouldn't. Sorry. Um, I am not a, like, kid-oriented person. But I do think that what eventually changed my mind, even with the sort of threats to my career that were real, that I saw, even with not being a baby person, even with not really thinking, again, having that view in my earlier years of like, ah, these people are suckers, like that kind of view, is that it is a part of being a human that is completely different from anything else you've experienced. And Yes, part of it is like, oh, you'll never know a love like that, all of that. But it's it's deep. It's more nuanced than that. And that in the end, if you are someone who likes to, I would say there are two kinds of people. There are people who want to like eat and experience and taste and, and do things like that. Um, you know, and there are people who don't. And there are people who have, you know, my husband will use the word appetite, like that, um, you know, you either have an appetite for life and for the world or you don't. You want to go hear the music. You want, I don't mean introvert or extrovert. I just mean that, like, you actually want to go out and experience life or you like sitting in your world. What's interesting about what you're saying there is I would say that with my wife, I have just recently, um, you know, by falling in love with her to begin with, Mm -hmm. 
I have a portal and access to a feeling that I did not know could be, mm -hmm. right? So right. so there's that. You're and, familiar with that paradigm. And all of my friends who have kids who think that I, because I'm responsible and loving and caring, that I would mm -hmm. do well in the raising of a child, mm -hmm. all of them tell me you don't understand the ways that you will grow, the access to things that you will have that you have blind spots about now. It's I'm, I'm, I'm advocating it for you because it's a selfish thing, not because it's going to be good for the kids. I'm sure the kids, your kids will be lovely. They'll be fine. You'll be do a good job as a dad. I'm talking more about you and that you are someone who I've always seen as being an appetite person, appetite for experiences and discussions and issues and food and love and sex and, and all the things that you're either a person who wants to do all that stuff or travel like or you don't. Right. And you are someone who, to me, has fallen into the category of I'm interested in the world. I'm interested in everything that's going on and I want to taste and experience some of these things. And it is a whole major column of the human experience that you just either have or you don't. And I would hate for you, who is so adept at navigating sort of bigger things in the world, and you actually get the marrow out of them, and you actually appreciate, you know, you don't just walk by and be like, oh, yeah, Eiffel Tower, that's nice. You know, what travel means, what um, being with people who aren't like you means, and actually getting out of those experiences what they're meant to be, to have you miss out on one of the like big human experiences, to me, as your friend, feels like a loss for you. And I'm sure the kids will be fine. How did it change you? I, I definitely had no idea that this whole pocket of the world existed. It was so flat to me. When other people were having kids around me, I had kids later than a lot of my friends. It was just sort of like, oh, yeah, you got a baby now. And like, here's what you got to do when you have a baby and you got to take care of it and you got to do this and you got to do that. And it was just very flat surface of um, the practicalities. Practicalities are not that appetizing if you're not a baby person. Right. Um, and I didn't understand the inner nuance of, oh, watching someone learn about things is fascinating. So when you have a little kid, when you have like a two and three-year-old kid, you could literally tell them that cows control whether the moon comes out at night or not. Like, you can tell them anything. And they're like, okay. You know, I mean, you can tell them like, oh, right. Um, you know, a, a chicken, the noise it makes is ribbit. And they'd be like, okay, chicken, ribbit. Like, all that stuff. And it's, it's so interesting and gives you such a good perspective on, this is just one little thing, but when I first had kids, like on, on how people learn things and how we as a society sort of will teach our kids one thing in one pocket and one thing in another pocket. And in some cases, how undoable that is. Because if you are told from the very first that chickens go ribbit, like it's going to be, it's, it's hard to get you to the cluck. And I think it, it changed the way I talked to a lot of people because it gave me a different perspective on where people came from and what they thought and who told them that and all of that stuff. And even the people who might have given me a hard time for being a woman in a business they didn't really want to see women in, it changed my perspective on how to talk and deal with those people. And that's just one thing. That's one thing when my kids were two, you know, and, and my, you know, through their age, you know, through elementary school, you learn all kinds of other categories of things. And, and, it's just such an interesting, and, and you do love them in a way you don't love anyone else. And that's interesting too, because you love your brother so much. 
and your mom and you love your dad and you think, oh, maybe it would be like that. You love your wife. It's different. Would it's you, not gre greater or worse. It's just different. And again, that's something you could experience that you're not experiencing now. Would you advise your daughters to choose your career path? Neither one of them is as they both they're inter they play sports. Both my daughters play sports. They like sports. They'll sit and watch football with me. Um, they, uh, you know, they'll they'll engage in basketball when I talk to them about it and stuff like that. But they don't love it. I loved it. I love it. And like, I don't think you can be in this business if you don't love it. I mean, I know people are. And as I said, people use it as a path. They use sports as a path to get the things they want. TV, being on TV, being famous or whatever. I don't think you last. And I don't think you, the experience is what I would want for them. So I keep telling them all the time, I want you to do well in school because I want you to have the choice later. To me, all that hard work and you talk about being a worker and what work meant to you. Work to me, it meant choice. That I could, if I worked hard enough, then the thing I wanted, I could get or that I had choices. If I didn't work hard, I didn't have choices, right? I so it's not a lot different than what I got. Work equals freedom. freedom. Right? And that um, it wasn't so much, I think that the nuanced difference is like, it wasn't the freedom to do anything I wanted. It was the freedom to do the thing I wanted and to have those choices available to you. And I think for girls in general, like, you know, the more educated you are, if you don't marry the wrong guy, um, you know, you have choices left. And there are women who unfortunately find themselves with, they've married the wrong guy and they've not working because they were raising kids. And then all of a sudden, a lot of their choices are taken away if they then decide to step out on their own. And I think that that's true in a work environment too. So I want my kids to all the same work ethic stuff of work hard, but the work hard is to get to do the thing you want to do. So I really mean it when I say to them, like, oh, I want you to be happy. But it's, it's the, I want you to be happy by doing something you wake up and love every day. Do you have balance now? Have you arrived? Because I, I, it took me a long time to get to something that felt like balance. My wife would say, even still, I don't like it when she says it that I have some workahol workaholic in me. <laughs> I don't, I, I don't want to think that I am that, but um, I am getting closer and closer to. Even though this makes it difficult uh, running a company, mm -hmm. I'm getting in adulthood closer and closer to something that feels like. A, a happiness balance. I think I'm closer to it. I don't think it's possible. Really? Yeah, especially for women. I, I think the the myth of you know you can have it all is I, there's an expression I heard a while ago that I really like of you know women can have it all but just not all at once. And I think that that's true. And that you know I looked at the pictures on the desk of the male executive and said, but you have you have it you have it. Um, and I think that uh, it's not. It's not really, truly possible. The, the, the win is to have it all at different times. I was trying to think, I think it's called Arrival. That movie really made me understand the idea of nonlinear time in a way I didn't before and think about, it changed the way I think about things of having it all at once is that there are different times in your life and the most recent stuff should not be weighted any more than the other stuff. And that you can go back mentally and visit any of those times in your life. It's not just the stuff that's happened in the last five years. So what I might have now, um, I have more of a weight on this part of my life. But that doesn't change the fact that at different points I had a weight on that part of my life. And that um, 
I think, again, I think achieving a perfect balance is impossible. Why do you think it's impossible for women, though? Because you're, is it because the world was built by, I, you're I living in a man's world? I think, or? First of all, I think it's impossible for you, too, by the way. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think that's just a women's thing. I think there are men out there who are also trying to, you know, figure out sort of how to, how to do what when. Um, I, I think that, you know, I, I don't think it's possible to give yourself as fully and completely to either side as you may need to at the same time as doing it on the other side. There are physically not enough hours in the day. You know, you can think you're doing it all, but you're not quite. Um, And I think that the way they complement each other the best is that they do clarify each other in terms of, great, this used to be my whole life. Now I have children or now this other parts of my life is more important to me. So it makes me distill down what in work I really have to do and what I don't. And flip side, work is really important to me. So it makes me distill down what I have to do and what I don't. And it's not just my kids. It's friendships I had that I frankly, I didn't realize I could have as good friendships as I have currently right now when I was so focused on other things and had such imbalance that I, and if I physically, you're physically not there, you can't be as close friends with someone. And now like there's some of the most important things in my whole life. And is that balance? I have more, more of it, but it's not a perfect Libra scale. I keep hitting the microphone. Your producers hate me. Uh, We're going to let you go on that note. Even though you are a polished television personality, you have hit this thing. I have hit this. You've hit that thing. I know. I talk with my hands a lot, and this is a very constricting environment, Dan. And you got really in there with me on not only do I want to know why you (laughs) haven't had kids, you're wrong for not having had kids. No, 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 no. And by the way, I don't think I want to make clear before the internet comes after me. It's not right for everyone. Not uh-huh. every, I respect and appreciate. And there are some people I'm like, you should not have children. Um, <laughs> I don't think kids are great in any circumstance. I think for you, my friend, who I've known for decades, I think that you would appreciate what there is to appreciate about it. Uh, always appreciate you. Thank you for spending this time with us. Good to see you again. Thank you. A lot has changed over the years, but one thing that hasn't, the great taste of Miller Lite. Man, we was just watching Celtics versus Nuggets last night, and the catalyst to the party, the vibe, the vibe changer, the mood increaser, was the Miller Lite cooler in the middle of the living room. Salute to Miller Lite, man. And when you're out having a great time, oh my goodness, you want to reach for a beer that's reliable. And I cannot name, think of, or even ponder a more reliable beer than Miller Lite. Can you dig it? Times change, but you can always enjoy the great taste of Miller Lite. Hmm. Tastes like Miller time. To get Miller Lite delivered right to your door, visit MillerLite.com beach. Or you can find it pretty much anywhere that sells beer. Celebrate responsibly. Miller Brewing Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. 96 calories per 12 ounces. Yiddick!